0: Mary, last week it was finally probably the most important moment for us on a little television show called Jeopardy. Have you heard of it? Uh yes. Yeah. So as many very kind listeners told us, there was a clue that we've kind of been waiting our whole lives for. Pleasant Rollins started this historical brand when she couldn't find suitable dolls for her nieces. What is American Girl? You nailed it. Thank you. Now I have a question for you. Uh oh. What is the clue this should have been?
1: American corporate founder drunk on an ego trip in the form of House Hunters cosplay vis-a-vis buying a town in upstate New York to remake in a false image of the American past.
0: What is Pleasant Rowland? Ding, ding, ding.
1: Now, that was also a Daily Double. And I would love to ask you, you know... If we had to, if you had to create an ideal clue for perhaps one of our favorite authors, Valerie Tripp, you know, where does your head go? So
0: I know that you don't watch Jeopardy because your clue is very long. They're so usually mean. about 12 words. No, <laughs> they're usually about 12 w- words. Um, so I would get right to the heart of the matter. Author Valerie Tripp invented this insatiably power-hungry monster <laughs> who is best described as a horse girl living in 1774. Oh my God. That was dark. Who is Felicity Merriman? I think it's clear neither of us watch Jeopardy based on. (laughs) But
1: we love Alex Trebek thinking of you.
0: I know we do. Get well.
1: Get well. Um (laughs) Oh, my God. That was that was rough. I feel like we still probably have some work to do to train to be on Jeopardy.
0: I tried out and I made it, but I was not of age.
1: Really? I didn't yes. know that.
0: Yes. So they came to my local mall in the tradition of all great American stories, and I did well. I passed through, uh, but I only got a keychain because I was not quite eligible for the main show. I wasn't college years, like I, I didn't quite fit in the categories, but I did pass.
1: Wow. That's awesome. I had no idea. Although I do think that Jeopardy is not for you if I understand how this show works, because I recently did watch the Tournament of Champions mm. and it was a lot of like white male ego power trip.
0: No. And to be honest with you, I'll watch and I'll not do well on entire categories And I do think part of it is there's people who's very good at knowing when to press the button and then like how to formulate the answer afterward. I think that's what
1: Ken Jennings does. Like he just buzzes into everything and is like, I'll figure it out. I read his Wikipedia page while I was watching an episode of that tournament and it filled me with rage and I'll leave it right there.
0: Oh, okay. There are some details about
1: his bad behavior and I'm going to leave it right there. But it was very upsetting to me because I had no idea.
0: I genuinely don't know about this.
1: I'm, You know what? I've been watching a lot of murder, she wrote, so I'm just going to leave that a mystery <laughs> for yeah. people to solve. As if I myself were Jessica, I don't need a reason, Fletcher.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, well, who am I and who are you? Well,
1: is? on that note, I guess let's get real. Welcome to American Girls, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. And sadly, I'm not Jessica Fletcher. I am Mary.
0: And I'm still Allison. Who is Allison? Or what is, I should say? What is Allison?
1: Remember how sometimes I would tell people you were named after the Elvis Costello song?
0: You would indeed. And I was not.
1: How are you? How's your week going? How's things?
0: You know, by the time this hits the airwaves, we don't know where the world's going to be.
1: Not probably not in a great place. I mean, I'll, I'll just guess at that.
0: So we are currently recording this during a pandemic. And I will just say all the effort and mental energy that I put into the flu epidemic and pandemic, I should say, centennial, which many people considered for not and not interesting. Who's, you know, holding on to their hankies now, folks? That was dark, but fair. Thank you. No, so there is a lot going on in the Mm -hmm. world right now, and we are going to talk a little bit about that. You're going to give people some historical context for pandemics and epidemics and the way disease and bodies interact, but I'm excited to talk about Addy. I'm excited to put Peter Weber on a plane to elsewhere to put that to bed. I have a lot of thoughts about Barbara, but I don't know that I want to talk about Barbara Weber that much at the same time that I get to talk about Addie having ice cream.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was literally just watching part two of the finale just before we sat down to record this. And I literally don't even want to speak about him because he's such an idiot and so infuriating. I just, I'm happy to be free of him. Thank you. Thank you, ABC, for finally ending this season. But yeah, I mean, the Barb of it all, it's a lot. It's a lot. Can I ask you a
0: serious question? Sure. What role did Barbara Weber, (laughs) me, something else, play in the Bay of Pigs finasco? I want you to take this seriously because I think if you don't imagine a role for her, we're just missing something. To paraphrase the Beastie
1: Boys, I can't stand it. I know she planned it. I'm going to get it straight, this Bay of Pigs. She is so over the top. I have never seen a parent behave this way on a reality show literally ever, except one time when I did watch Diary, or, or no, it was like Made or one of these MTV shows, and the guy who had been the drummer for Billy Joel was on it, and he was like borderline abusive of his son, and I it stayed with me. But short of that, Barb is like out here on her own. It's like, Barb, we're dealing with a pandemic. We don't need pandemic Barb in addition to everything else. We truly do not.
0: So I always question... So first of all, there's editing, right? That makes people look bad. So we, we know that. But I think the most fascinating moment of this entire season was when she turned to her husband and said in Spanish, as if no one would understand or later add a caption, say something bad, help me. <laughs> and I think that's like so fascinating because it's so dark and to be totally honest with you, I don't fundamentally disagree with her assessment of his last two relationships. Like I do actually agree with her assessment that someone who is very active in their church and being evangelical, right? In right. in the truest sense of it, is probably not fundamentally compatible with a person who has no interest in a church. Right. Correct. Like I actually agree with that. Yeah. But the way that she turned to her husband, I was like, what is her end game here? Because it has nothing to do with her son. It was so I'm
1: still thinking about it. I have no idea. If you haven't seen this show, basically the mom of The Bachelor was so upset that he so he proposes to the person she preferred. And then a month after their engagement, he breaks it off and eventually takes up with Madison, the person that the mom had has like an unnatural dislike for. And even though her reasons are somewhat sound, as you say, there is like this emotional piece that comes from, from nowhere where they were so toxic to each other on this reunion. It was insane to me. I have no idea. I think in a sense, like her saying, say something bad to her husband gets that kind of a thing that some couples do where it's like, if I'm against, if I'm negative about this, you have to be too. Or like, we have to have the same opinion about everything, which is of course insane, but Why she has so much, she doesn't have that much skin in the game. Like, if anything, she should be comforted by the statistics of this show, which show that very few of them actually get married or stay (laughs) together. So, I mean, it's probably going to work out in her favor anyway. Just give it time and let Peter be Peter, so to speak. But it is, it was really toxic and hard to watch.
0: I think what was also really interesting to me was there was a Peter that came out that was so animated when he was talking with his family, with whom I think he's. Genuinely close. And if you don't follow this that closely, Peter actually grew up and still lives with his parents in a home that's like a stone's throw from the Bachelor Mansion, which I think is like actually incredibly dark in its own way. Like he literally grew up in like the shadow of this other estate. So that also tells you a lot about his upbringing, but like almost the chemistry and like the love and the emotion that came out when he was talking with his parents and brother and the same way that he was when Hannah returned. There was a side of him that I feel like I have not seen on a single date where it was like a comfort and a real love for these people that he did not have with either of the last two women.
1: Yes, true. And I think it's kind of weird that the mom, I do think it's strange that Barb is so ride or die for a person that his son, her son clearly isn't that into. Like, I'm trying to imagine if my any one of my family members was like, yeah, I don't know. I really like this other person you dated. Like when I was in high school, I was dating someone that I didn't even really like. And at a certain point I ended it and my grandmother was like, had previously sort of pretended to like this guy. And then the minute I was like, yeah, that's kind of over. She was like, I never liked him. He was never good enough for you. And I'm so glad you figured that out. He's dead like he's dead to us all. Fluffy was like it's over. So the fact that they literally cut to Barb clapping as we watch P- Hannah Ann hand it to Peter when he breaks off their engagement and she calls him out on his bad behavior and Barb's like, "Yes, Hannah Ann, thank you for like yelling at my son even though what she said was correct." <laughs> it's so strange.
0: I don't I don't want to say that there's like any kind of connection, but it's like first this comes into our life and now there's like a global disruption of travel you know, Barb acted out and then the stock market crash. Coincidence? I mean, people, I'm going to be honest with you. This may even be on tape. I don't recall if it made it to the show. When we entered the year 2020, people who have never opened a proper history book were saying, I can't can't believe it's the 20s again. I'm so excited. It is indeed the 20s. We have a rebirth of the Klan. We have a major pandemic. We have a stock market crash This is what you wanted with the 20s all in one month. It's all happened already.
1: And we also have a broader popular culture of conspicuous consumption. So why is it that when the economy is not doing well at all, um, that in popular culture, we're obsessed with these extravagant displays of wealth that have nothing to do with the lived reality of most Americans?
0: Are we prepared to deal with Addie's birthday?
1: Listen, I love a birthday story. So I love a birthday. I love an ice cream story. I'm ready. Let's do this. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn.
0: Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships.
1: What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously. So we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well.
0: If you're a creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn.
1: That's right. So just head over to Podcorn.com and get started today.
0: So I'm going to take us to the magical year of 1994, which is when this book came out. We talked previously that they kind of would come out in batches and give us a very rapid recap from the publisher. Springtime in Philadelphia, and Addie and her parents have moved from the garret into a boarding house. There, Addie finds a wise and inspiring friend, Madir. Like many people who grew up enslaved, Addie doesn't know when she was born. Madir encourages Addie to claim a special day for her birthday, but no day seems just right. One day, Madir falls ill. When Addie and Sarah take a streetcar to get medicine for her, they face prejudice and danger. Madir helps Addie overcome her anger and hurt, and gives her a deeper understanding of freedom. When Addie finally claims a birthday, she has grown in many ways. Her birthday is a special day indeed and the whole city celebrates. Just in case you're already kind of like, oh my gosh, does she accidentally pick the Lincoln assassination day? <laughs> no. I just want to get that Thank right out. Him.
1: Yeah, that's thankful. Yes.
0: It's April 1865. It's a Sunday. Lincoln is not at the theater. He's very much detained with other things. Annie picks April 9th, which makes her an Aries. And I'll just say one more thing that really deserves attention from this book. Addie has a lot of experiences with jump rope in ways that are beautifully symbolic and very much for me like an upsetting reminder of physical education circa 1994.
1: Yeah, I mean, how are you doing with all this? I was shocked to learn that you did jump rope in gym because I was never allowed to do that and I would have loved that.
0: We had an extensive calisthenics program and I don't, I don't want to call it the Clintons right now because I think like there's enough going on with federal politics, but under president William Clinton, just saying wow. we had several initiatives, which like the presidential fitness, I don't know if you did this. And we incidentally also had jump rope for heart and both like pushed me mind body. I'm serious. You're making a face like they No, I'm me, just like, like,
1: this is intense. I'm I'm really paying yeah. attention to you.
0: No, I was I was a super fail at all of it because we had the president's levels of fitness and I like did not make any marks. And then we had jump rope for heart, which was like extensive marathons of jump roping at which I also did not excel. That's that's a dark day. We had
1: presidential level of fitness. But again, Allison, I did go to Catholic school. This was an elementary school, you're saying. So we did not have a lot of like materials for gym class. We had some basketballs. We had a kickball. So it was basically like whatever could happen without any accoutrement. That's what we did. I remember at one point our gym teacher taught us different dancing styles. We had to do square dancing. Won't even get into that. And that fraught history in our country. I just remember the gym teacher at one point was trying to, my brother was in my year and he, she was like making him dance with her and he wasn't doing something correctly. And she claimed in this dance style, I don't know what it was, that like at some point you could do like a somersault. And she like literally like picked him up and turned him over. And I've never <laughs> been so traumatized in gym ever before or since. i wow.
0: I was recently, I was in a gym, a cafetorium for a children's program. And I was talking about how so many things that happen at those ages are so formative and they have these long lasting effects. Like pretty much every course that I took in physical education from like grades, (laughs) kindergarten, like to present, like I didn't excel, like I didn't do well, but I never figured out like how to get something meaningful out of it, even if I couldn't be good at it. And that has such a real, we are going to get to Addy, I promise, but that has such a real consequence because even watching Addy struggle to jump rope, I felt that so hard because I had, you know, Not for a long time, but like I wasn't good at skipping. I could never do like drills in gym class. I could not be good at any of those things. Mm -hmm. And I look back and I think like that's so all about how you're socialized because the point shouldn't have been if you were good at it. Like the way Addie and Sarah kind of get around getting good at jump roping and Addie eventually nailing it with the double dutch with the help of her friend Medeer. It's like she learned to enjoy it and she learned to appreciate something versus just like being good at gym class.
1: I think it's a lot about like what you're saying makes me think a lot about this idea that the process is as important as the product, which is something I say like in another part of my life where I help people make digital projects that like the act of learning how to do something is as important as whatever it is you make at least in your first attempt and there's a book that I've mentioned on my book stream I think it's called making as a form of mending or something like that but basically the point is if you learn how to sew or make books or do any of these crafting things, whatever you're into, like the process of just sitting down and doing that is of as much value as like whatever it is you end up making. And I think for me, gym class was always kind of that, like I could just let go and do it. And I think I also hmm. just loved sports. I was, you know, maybe we wouldn't have been friends then. I don't know. <laughs> like I do reflect on your roller skating also views versus mine. And that's also a clear divide. Like I do worry like what would have happened if I met you in gym class at age nine.
0: But I think you would have been a good friend like Sarah who encourages Addie. Like pretty much page one is Addie trying to figure out how she's going to go from single jump roping to being sort of like a good part of you know the community and like being able to yes. do double dutch and like play with everybody and kind of get in. And it's another subtle reminder that like Addie is still getting used to having friends, right? Like she is a young person. We talked about this with the objects. One of the reasons why both a sled and jump rope were developed for Addie was to reinforce that now she has a right to be a child and she has a right to be fun and social. And there is thinking, I don't know if this is really confirmed, that it was children working at factories who used bobbins and then attached rope to make jump rope that's a thinking I'm not sure if that's really verified but this whole thing of like children stealing away freedom and joy and play like that maps on so beautifully and I mean it's not a spoiler we'll just tell you like Addy basically like can't get it with the jump roping which I felt really hard and then when she befriends Madeir, Madeir is blind and Madeir teaches her how to like hear and interact with the world differently And that trains Addie to tune in to the sounds of the jump rope, and then she can finally do it. It's like this beautiful moment. And I thought that was just like very well rendered, where all these different people are like, no, Addie, you can do it. Right. And and we can do it together.
1: Yeah. First of all, the double Dutch was stressing me out, because that's something I was never able to do ever, then, now, probably ever in my life. So I have extreme respect that Addie ever figured this out in the book, because I would have just been... I would have given up or just done single jump rope, which is kind yeah. of all I did. I remember I had a skip it. Do you, did you ever have one of those?
0: I was aware, but did not own a skip it. And it, it's like kind of weird to think
1: about. But in this book, jump rope is has is like a liberating metaphor and a liberating activity, physical activity. And I look back on it and skip it basically attached to your ankle. And it looked like a ball and chain that you swung <laughs> around and jumped over. And I'm like... I was literally salivating over having a skip it and I was literally like I romanticizing having a wearing a ball and chain and forcing myself to exercise with it and I thought that was recreation like I don't I had no idea jumping rope and all this could make me think about all these different issues but I do think liberation is really bound up with jumping rope in this book in a way that's really interesting and actually madeir giving her the secret to Mm -hmm. doing this is really interesting and there's a quote that i loved from madeir we'll we'll have to talk about her as a person and what role she plays in this book but At one point on page 17, she says, slavery has taken a lot from colored people. If we want to get some of it back, we're going to have to take it. And actually, that's a really radical statement. I mean, I think there's no sense from Madeer, who's the oldest person in this book and in Addie's world at this point, that you should be accommodationist, that you should ever make yourself small in a city of white people who are um, repressing you in a lot of ways that we see in this book, you know, despite it being a so-called free city or the quote city of brotherly love. Um, that's not what Addie's experiencing or her family. And actually, Madeira is saying, "No, you actually forcefully have to take your freedom." Which you know, props again to Connie, still loving these books, but. I love that Medeer said that because in a way it gives Addie the power to take action in her own life as, in something as low stakes as learning how to double dutch jump rope, but also presumably in bigger stakes things as well.
0: Well, and it's such a change because when they lived with the older woman that Addie's mother was working for, like they had one kind of relationship and I was sort of making notes of like, who's new in this book? And the people who own the boarding house are Mr. and Mrs. Golden. We don't really get their first names. And I put as an aside, don't matter because they really don't like they, they really don't. don't add anything. But then we see all this furniture coming in and Mr. Golden says that his mother is coming into the boarding house and it's kind of like exciting. And then I put Madeer, everything. Everything. She is. She, she is. Yeah. Oh my God. She's amazing. She opens up, you know, all these new things for Addie. And it's also a reminder that she still doesn't have all of her family. Like not all of the family has been reunited. But Madeir, as a kind of chosen family just like takes Addie on. And we learn that part of why they're becoming so close is Sarah has to work a lot. Like Sarah very busy. She's helping her mother. Um, like they're still like kind of struggling, you know, in similar ways that Addie and her family are struggling. And Madeira is kind of a dream companion because she doesn't need to work. She has some money. She's got like change that she's happy to give out. She's a really cool bird. Great bird, Sunny. She always knows where you are because she's like very attentive. Um, I was like, I, I would like be willing to move in with her. Yeah. I mean,
1: here's the thing. I love older people. Like they're my fave population to me, this that was a very relatable part of this book to me because, as you know, my grandma Fluffy was my best friend. So to me, like the idea that you would go hang out with an older lady and while she smoked and watched Judge Judy and like told you stories that were probably age inappropriate, like that makes sense. So even when um, Madeira at one point is like, "I knew you were," I knew you were born in slavery. Like she just says that and like does this reading of Addie that you kind of it gave me pause. I was like is that really like the best thing to say is an opening line <laughs> to Addie? A person you don't know, a child you don't know, but she's just so like frank and honest and she doesn't talk down to Addie because she's a child. She actually treats her with respect. And I think because Addie feels um, in a way seen and I'm using that word on purpose because I think Madeira, the choice to make Madeira a blind character is says a lot about this book, which is my personal belief that for Addie's birthday, the gifts she gets are metaphors because there's about 500 in this book. <laughs> yeah. So Medea is blind, <laughs> and I think it recalls a lot of the lyrics of even hymns like Amazing Grace was blind and now I see, like the association between metaphors of blindness and enslavement that Madeira represents in a lot of ways or gives Addie kind of like a prism to see her own experience through. Um, I just love their friendship. It reminded me of Great Nana from Knives Out, who is another one of my like <laughs> older women pop culture heroes lately.
0: Uh, and I think it was smart too, like you're saying, like she's not older, so she's accommodationist, right? Like she's not older, so she's conservative. And I think what it does beautifully is it shows like ways that people from different backgrounds, different ages, are all dealing with the racism and segregation in Philadelphia. And I kind of like that Medeer had a little bit of intrigue. Like, why does she have so much furniture, so much money, you know? And we and, never learn that. No, that's that's for her to know. But we kind of meet her at this interesting moment where she's losing some of her independence. She has to move in with her children, the Goldens. You know, again, it's like, hi, like subtle, you know, but I <laughs> like it. Um But just the way that she treats Addy like with so much respect and interest, she's also filling a gap that Addy's parents at that moment can't fill because her father is like six months behind them on a curve where he's like just learning the particular kind of prejudice they're facing a little bit after they are. So he's like in a different, I would almost say like stage of mourning, like he's really angry, whereas Addy and her mother are in a different place with it.
1: Yeah. And that, that comes into juxtaposition really early in in the book when it's literally on page four that Papa says, um, I never expected things to be easy and freedom, but I didn't think things would be so hard either. And he says this when he's driving an ice truck that he's um, – you know, working on to deliver ice from to restaurants and so on. And Addie sees him in the street and hops on and is talking with him. And, and she responds later on the next page saying, Here in Philadelphia, um, it seems like my world's getting bigger and bigger. Sometimes I can't believe I really go to school, that I can read and write and do my figures. I used to dream about it, but it's real. And so just on the, those two pages, consecutive pages, like you're saying, you see two people at very different stages of claiming freedom and what and living with the reality of what that actually means
0: when well, he's trying to get a better job for himself he's doing the delivery but he's a talented carpenter and no one will give him a chance right and it's there's a lot of echoing which we've seen in each of the books usually it's an Addie and her mother but just a few pages later they're talking about like how he's not even getting entertained for jobs And Addy says, you know, that it's not fair. And he says, you know, no, but that's the way it is. And that's like a kind of phrasing that's come up a lot. But pretty much every time the author gives us an interplay back and forth, it's like someone makes a declarative statement and then someone else either questions it or there's like a nice interplay every time. We also get, I thought, a really powerful follow-up to the pretty obvious foreshadowing that something would happen on a streetcar. When, as I mentioned in the description, Addie and Sarah are kind of having a play date and they decide to be helpful and to get Madeira's medicine way across town. And they're given enough money where they can take the streetcar, but there's a fight because of the discrimination and there not being enough space. And Addie is like front row witness to that. And I like that there are threads in this series that keep coming up, like people handling things differently.
1: Yeah, I do too, because I think um, it kind of speaks back to a trend in children's prior to this, which kind of painted with broad strokes when it came to storylines about enslaved people or the civil rights movement, where it's sort of like All Black people think about activism the same or or experience freedom in the same ways when obviously that's not true. So the fact that this is a 50-something page book and Connie presents us with so many different visions of how people interact with freedom or with the racism they experience in their day-to-day lives... I just, I'm so impressed by this series. I mean, it's not like the other ones where we've kind of been bemoaning certain depictions. Like, I actually think this is really, really strong.
0: Also think it was a smart and obviously very deliberate choice to not fudge it and act like Addie would have known her birthday because she would not, right? And- the conversations she has with Madeira, where she says, you know, all that she really knows is that she was born in the springtime because that's what her mother remembers and that it was nine years ago. So she's going to turn 10 years old. And then we've talked about, you know, the importance of Addie writing her name for the first time. Mm-hmm. She gets to do this second act of self-fashioning by picking her birthday. And again, I love the places where she's still very much like nine going on ten. They're like, okay, Addie, so you can pick. And, and she's kind of like dragging it out. And the mom is saying like, you're never going to have a perfect day. You know, you, you kind of have to decide at some point. And she picks, of course, a very important weighty day, which is April 9th, the day the Civil War ends because it's a day of celebration. But I think that was so subtle, like the mother's kind of frustration of like, you can picture a nine-year-old waking up every day and being like, not yet. <laughs> You know, I got an extra snack, but I don't think it's today because they've kind of built up that like they will make it special for her. And she's like, oh, not this one. Nope.
1: Yeah. Soon.
0: Yeah. It's very nine. It is a
1: very nine thing. And I also like, too, that the dad is sort of frustrated because he's the (laughs) one who found the broken ice cream maker and repaired it. So I think at a moment when he's sort of I think we can read some emasculation in the sense that he's recognized that as property, his his carpentry skills were valued Quite highly it, it raised his um, worth as a as a um, a possession. but as a free person he is not valued at all for the same exact skills. So he's actually used them now to kind of I think there's a moment where in the beginning he's delivering ice to an ice cream parlor. And Addie, without thinking, says, I would love ice cream. And he comes out and basically says, like, wow, what a city. I can deliver ice here, but I can't buy my daughter ice cream. So he's very emasculated, I think, early in the book. And I think he's wanting that kind of reward of being able to provide for his daughter. And so Addie, like, completely as a nine-year-old is, like, not seeing that. he's <laughs> like,
0: yeah, I don't know. It's not really the, great, the perfect day yet. When well, Addie is the one who tees him up for the job he gets of actually being a carpenter, but part of how she's able to do that, she can read the sign. Right. Yeah. So she actually is facilitating her father getting the job. And I think about conversations people have in families where there might be several different languages spoken at home, but the only language spoken at a school is English. Mm-hmm. And so children are put in a position of translator. Again, going back to Addie as a kind of refugee, that's what she's doing. She's translating for her father for other people in her life. Like, okay, here's how this is working.
1: Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to see like how kinship and their family is playing out. Like that you can see that she's playing these like kind of elevated roles of, of providing that specialized knowledge. And yet she's still a nine year old.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know?
1: So even those moments when they can't come home for dinner because they're both working and there's an illustration of her alone at the table with the other boarders at the boarding house, you do get a sense of like, oh, she's nine years old and sometimes she's kind of on her own. And the mom, it's funny, was like frustrated. We were talking off air when Addie wants to go hang out with Madeer all the time. <laughs> but I think it's in part because it's nurturing and the parents can't be there all the time.
0: I, I just... Again, I went back to the description of like what these books are supposed to do. And they're supposed to make you feel like certain things are universal and certain things are specific and historical. And there's so many nuggets of this, like being bad at jump rope, wanting ice cream really badly in my life, those things being related, right? (laughs) At some point. Um, But, you know, the kind of joy that you feel when she does make that choice and there is something both like very, very beautiful and symbolic about her choosing the day that the Civil War ends, the day that things are about to change for the country, and the fact that there's – what she feels is almost like fireworks. Like there's loud explosions outside. She's like, this will be my birthday. You yeah. know, yeah. like childish. Not I don't mean that in a condescending way, but like that that's exciting. So you would pick that. Um, right. It, it, not so different from Frederick Douglass choosing Valentine's Day as his birthday. Right.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Cause he chose
0: that, so not yeah. so different.
1: These moments of self-fashioning, I think, are really fascinating, and it does kind of invite a question about what what does it mean to kind of map so much on your birthday as a moment of self-fashioning?
0: I don't know. Well, we do know that she's an Aries. What does that mean? So, in terms of her particular date, and again, because she chose it, you know. It does mean something different, um, but according to one website, means you have a no-nonsense approach to life. Um, only fools would rush into life-changing situations. Unlike other Aryans, um, an April 9th baby is more receptive and patient. Intuition is part of your charm, and you are more likely to make bold statements, which I feel like is actually 100% Addy.
1: Yeah, I think that actually all tracks.
0: That actual, and I know you asked like a very serious question. And I'm like, anyway, this is- Nope, it's fine. But I did find some people who had this birthday and I don't think I've ever scrolled so long through a list and found literally no names I recognized. Really? I was kind of, no, I'm serious. And I don't say that to be like mean to a day because um, there was a birthday that we were really mean to and a new mom, her child was born on that day. and Oh we, no. Do you remember this?
1: yeah. I kind of blacked um, that out. I'm sorry. And we
0: apologize for that. But, we
1: apologize again.
0: Because um, we don't think people were actually like listening at that point. So we, we kind of went on for a bit. But basically all these very important people like saints, composers, playwrights, politicians, like dozens of them that I have never heard of but hugely important in their time and century, all April 9th babies. And then a few like very particularly significant historic Americans like Paul Robeson, has this Ooh. birthday. Um, Bill Leonard, who's a journalist. Again, you know, not a lot of like fancy names. <laughs> Kristen Stewart. Okay.
1: Ta, ta, ta. Um, am
0: I am I helping at all? Sure. Um, but there's like there's some pretty big gaps where I was like, okay, I haven't quite heard of of many of these people, but fear not. There's a few others. Um. So, Keshia Knight Pull- Pulliam, um, who's an American actress, she was on The Cosby Show. Of course, Rudy. Ru- you knew her? Yeah, of
1: course. It's oh. hard to say that, you know, you watch The Cosby Show with pleasure now, because obviously I didn't know then, r- watching reruns, what was going on. But the episode where um Lisa Bonet, <coughs> her character's name was... Oh, God. Um, I know probably people are screaming at their speakers right now. But when she decides she wants to get into making clothes and she makes Theo a silk shirt and he pays her to do it instead of buying a really fancy one. And it's like an absolute disaster. That is like one of my well was one of my all time favorite episodes of television. I love it. And Rudy was adorable.
0: Well, she shares this important moment with like another American girl. So that's good. That's great. Um, Like, honestly, the list is like, I, I truly was like,
1: I can't make. Well, look, what I'm hearing is Addie picked a day on which there was a lot of open real estate. And maybe she was hoping <laughs> that she would define the day. And, and we can do that for her. We can say, you know. End of the Civil War is the second most memorable thing that happened on April 9th. First is that Addie was born, or it's the day that she has claimed her birth. Um, In a way, like this entire plot line is like straight up Leo energy, where she's like, This is going to be about me. I'm picking this day. I know the Civil War ended, but it's actually my birthday. (laughs) Like, okay, I get that your family's about to be reunited, you think, but, you know, first of all, try saying that to me and, like, how dare you say it to me on my birthday? (laughs) I'm not thinking about it. We don't get an Esther name check because it's her birthday.
0: But I feel like, unlike a Leo, she won't make it, like, a birthday week. Like, she's actually, like, saving everyone time and money by, like, latching on to an existing celebration.
1: Um. First of all, I feel personally attacked. And how dare you speak to me that way during Women's History Month. Secondly, have I been plotting throwing myself a birthday party with roller skating and a watching of a viewing of glitter? Yes. But unfortunately, both you and Anna won't roller skate. So this is probably not going to happen for me. But you know what? Addie gets to have her day. Forget it. If she wants the entire month of April, I give that to her.
0: I, I want that for her too. I just think she's like, I think she's an Aries written by a Leo.
1: You know what? God bless. What a blessing that is. <laughs> if you can have a Leo write your life story. It's, you know a, gift. it's like, a gift. Like trust me.
0: I know like I live it. It's a gift. It's wonderful. Wow. Um, As someone recently um said to me, if I believed in any of that, I would say that I'm a Taurus. And I literally said well, it doesn't matter because it believes in you. It's true. true. It is it's true. true. We Some friends of ours sent us
1: a tweet that said, um, economics is astrology for men. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it <that> feels right. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, I want to talk about the other piece of this, which I do feel like is also a Leo energy, which is like the centrality of ice cream in this story. Please. And I want to just like take you on a very brief, pleasant memory When we went to Philadelphia, we went to an old timey eighteen seventies. We sure did. Oh
1: my god, we had the best time.
0: Take me back. Take me back. Someone recently added us, and I got very excited. It's someone named Hannah who runs a sweet history Instagram. It's gonna change your life. Like I want to tell you. So she did uh, an Instagram story that you know, was a mention. So that's how it popped up into my consciousness. And I started looking through her page. I've never been more jealous that I didn't make a thing in like a very long time. I'm scrolling through and she uses um when well, she says they they are recipes inspired by people and places of the past. And I'm like, okay, well some of the food of the past was like it's a past you know, we don't need to bring it back. So I'm looking at what she actually does. She has recipes that are often named after people. Like there's a Marie Antoinette. (gasps) Then my finger keeps scrolling and I see the Ida Tarbell and I'm like, excuse me, clear my calendar. So I click on the Ida Tarbell, like literally in my notes, there's like all caps here. It's this like beautiful recipe that's like a very thoughtful encapsulation of like this kind of thing like represents this piece of her story I'm like give this person a MacArthur genius grant I
1: right now, I'll give her a James Beard Award. I think that's food related. Three Michelin stars. Uh, sure. I think those are appropriate. Give her everything. Let's do give it. Give her
0: everything. No, I was very impressed by it. And I feel like Addie would have approved because she does look at like different histories of food. Um, and honestly, we could turn this whole podcast into like history of ice cream. But reading this led me to a website um, with an article, quote, an 1807 ice cream cone, discovery and evidence. Oh, my God. And sometimes I think that, like, the fundamental core of our relationship is, like, taking seriously investigations that don't need to be done. They all need to be done. there's, like, a shared aloneness in that. And then I see that Robert J. Weir spent, like, 2,000 words on finding the first evidence of ice cream cones. And I just want to say thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you for your service. Thank you.
0: Basically, sorry, I promise like I won't I won't like read more than a sentence of this, but this opening line, the debate, the ice cream cone invention. <laughs> the ice cream cone invention story has several variations, most of them describing some ice cream vendor at the fair holding a waffle-like wafer into a cone shape and filling it with an ice cream, and then he talks about the dispute that's erupted. And then he has indisputable facts and evidence. I just love that people are taking the time to get this right. Like, I know that we're apparently all ignoring epidemiologists and like the like, but I just want to thank Robert Weir and I want to thank Hannah for creating these forums where the truth about ice cream matters.
1: You know, and if people go on there, I just hope they don't have a meltdown because- These people's work is so important. It does remind me of another ice cream fact I want to share with you, and I don't know if you know this. I don't know. Okay. The founder of perhaps one of the finest businesses of the 20th century in New England, speaking of course of friendlies, he took his riches and he built himself a mansion that was an exact replica of Monticello. And of course, people falsely believe Thomas Jefferson introduced ice cream to the (laughs) United States. I'm just saying it all comes together, Allison. Yeah. I didn't make that up. That's a fact.
0: No, I mean, to close this loop, we previously spoke with a peek into the pantry on another Kirsten episode. And while we were talking about ice cream, I was like, well, of course, like she's going to have a hot take, right? Like she's going to have a recipe. We can link to that in the show notes she has actually done a few different features on ice cream because both Addie and Samantha had ice cream maker accessories. Hmm. And part of what I found interesting is that the tools that they would have used to make ice cream are actually really similar. Like the hand crank apparatus, because the technology didn't change that much. Um, Gwen also notes that it was in 1832 that Augustus Jackson, um, an African American man who had actually been working in the White House came to Philadelphia and made the prototype this is right from her website for an ice cream churn that would be the basis for ice cream machines whoa i didn't know that
1: that was that's amazing and of course I, it just fills me with rage because it's like of course a black man invented this and then he's not like in this book we literally see a black man not allowed to buy ice cream
0: also continuing, I like I hate to do this, but again from her blog, um just over a decade after that, it's a woman named Nancy. That is what it is. Nancy Johnson patents a hand cranked ice cream freezer. Um and she says just like the one that Addie brings home in the books. Um so it's kind of like not a great feminist moment. Yeah. Nancy.
1: Nancy. I mean, but
0: she she does also add that in another period there were actually quite a few um, ice cream shops that were specifically owned by African American people. So that might be something that changed in the wake of reconstruction because um, you can think of like certain kinds of service positions like Pullman porters, right? That in the wake of the end of the Civil War, um, there is like a major demographic shift in who fills those positions. So it does seem like ice cream might be one of those.
1: Hmm. It's interesting to think too about how the histories of food service and restaurants actually offer histories of um, civil rights and kind of like provide locations for activism in Black communities. Thinking about the book about McDonald's that just came out that seems to like echo a hundred years later, like a similar history.
0: Yeah. So that book is called Franchise, mm-hmm. that's right? By um, Marsha Chatelain, who also has the best opinions about Law and Order. Hundred um, percent. She's been featured on quite a few true crime podcasts. But exactly what you're saying, like thinking about unconventional places to be studied in civil rights as critical to those struggles. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Like his frustration, Addie's father is coming from the fact that he is considered the the right person, quote unquote, to deliver but isn't actually able to partake. And they have this line about how it's like a strange kind of freedom. And I think part of why, you know, joking about her having like Leo energy aside, like she understands even though she's nine going on 10 years old, that like April 9th, 1865, like her life is about to be different. Um, And I was really curious. Like it made me look back at a bunch of old newspapers. Like what did people know? And when Hmm. because when you look back at the end of something like World War One, people who were not serving, who were getting regular news, like they knew that the armistice was coming that entire week. If you look back at newspapers, it was like, when, we're not sure. Um, in a similar way, um, close to a week before this, um, Richmond had fallen, and that was huge hmm. because that was the capital of the CSA, and at this point, The surrender at Appomattox has happened, but it's on the 10th, obviously, because the 10th is also a Monday that there's all these headlines about what it means. And what's so striking, like knowing with our 2020 is there's an obsession with Lincoln, right? Like the preservation of the union and Lincoln, and he's not even going to see the weekend, Oh,
1: that's chilling. Anytime you read something like that, where it's like the days before he was murdered and you know it, yeah, it's hard.
0: But she's gonna be spending like it's about two weeks after that. If you look through the newspapers, um, Lincoln's body does come through Philadelphia, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's such an important site. I don't know if that's covered in the next book, it's probably too tight in the timeline. Um, but You know, when you have conversations with people about political volatility, I think it's easy to lose the frame of reference and the context that, you know, part of this country broke away, formed its own country, was, you know, sort of forced into a surrender, and within a week shot the president. Like, that's really stunning when you think about it that way.
1: Yeah, it's it's so much so soon, and it's like... You have to think about the ways that people then were just living with like a kind of like low-level familiarity with chaos being the main determinant of their lives, like not knowing where a loved one was on a particular day, whether they were alive or dead fighting in the war. I mean, just living with that every day, a lot of people can't relate to even that basic fact.
0: Yeah. And I mean, speaking of kind of – because I was thinking too like the Civil War was among other things a public health crisis, Mm -hmm. like the constant influx of – people and disease and movement and like what to do with dead bodies. And I know that you know a lot about Philadelphia in times of disease for like reasons that you just know things.
1: Well, I don't know about that, but I mean, <laughs> Philadelphia is a really important city in the history of medicine. And you did take me there and you actually took me to a museum that is one of my favorite museums in the world. Um, you took me to the Mütter Museum, which is itself a museum of a museum. So if you can kind of get past that meta-ness, it's a museum of a 19th century medical museum. So you go in there and there's literally like skeletons, Chang and Ang are there um, for like conjoined twins who are in the um, ringing, uh, yeah, at the Barnum Circus, right? Um but it was used for medical students and physicians to learn in the 19th century. Now you can go and kind of see, you know, a museum of what that education looked like. But there's so much in the history of Philadelphia that tells you about kind of larger histories of medicine. And so in Addie's time, what we should know is that it was a city that had some of the largest um, Civil War hospitals in it. Um, so... Lots going on with that, thinking about that as kind of an epicenter of a lot of these same debate, racial debates um, that we see happening, happening and framing Addie's life. And actually, if you read hospital newspapers, patients were allowed, soldiers were allowed to create newspapers in a lot of these hospitals, you'll see that um, kind of in the margins of the newspaper, kind of referenced almost off, off screen, if you will, the mixed metaphors, They'll talk about contraband, which is a disparaging term for um, uh, um, former enslaved people who have claimed freedom and are living in Philadelphia and in Washington, D.C. You'll hear, you'll read about the roles, they, mostly service roles they played in these spaces, but also about um, black servicemen who are being cared for in these hospitals um, and their families trying to get access to them. And actually, it's those um, difficulties of servicemen, actually black servicemen getting to um to their positions, but also the wives of black servicemen in these hospitals in Philadelphia, their inability to get access to them on streetcars, it actually drives a lot of the legislation that changes streetcar segregation laws, which you know more about. So I'll let you say more about that. Oh, yes. I'll dip back in with um, some more medical things, but that takes us slightly out of it's going to be in Philadelphia and then take us elsewhere.
0: No, absolutely. So because it's already come up in another book, it was like, okay, we'll dip a little bit more into it. Um, are you familiar with a horse-drawn streetcar model?
1: Uh, not particularly. I've seen some images, but that's about it.
0: So it's sort of like my pleasure and privilege that I get to ride historic trolleys at work, which is a lot of fun. And I always joke with people that if you really want to be insufferable, you can remind them that it's actually a trolley car. Because the trolley is the apparatus on the top that controls the power and the movement. So a exactly. trolley car is what you ride in. So just like hot tip to make friends. But the thing that preceded the trolley car, in particular, the electric trolley car was horse-drawn streetcars. So um, almost like an omnibus, basically like a, a large moving thing of transport, but horses are moving it rather than it being aligned on a track. Um, so those were only introduced a few years before Addy comes onto the scene. About six years before Addy arrives in Philadelphia- and those actually coexisted along with streetcars up until the 1890s, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's in the 1860s that streetcars are becoming more and more common. And part of what people had talked about, you know, again, paralleling the ice cream, they were seen as innovative because middle class uh, white women were allowed to ride them and they could make their way through the city. Um, but this thing that was touted as an important moment for women. a a specific kind of woman, um, actually erased the fact that they were segregated. And so Mm. black men, women, and children, um, were not allowed to ride on the cars. Um, and as you're saying, it's this critical time between 1859 and 1867, when there are black people protesting the fact that they are not allowed to ride. And the fact that there's very few cars that even allowed for segregated ridership, um, People in the town or sorry, the city actually voted to keep them segregated, to not allow black riders at all. Um, but a man named William Still and Octavius Cato um, moved and actually made it so that in 1867, anyone was allowed to ride them. What's hmm. your like streetcar moment? Love it. Even if you didn't desire it. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that.
1: <laughs> I knew it. um but all this past week i've been obviously history of medicine is a topic that's really interesting to me and you can't live in our world right now and not be thinking about medicine except i guess if you work for the government until very recently when you know i guess it wasn't a topic of great interest but when you think about philadelphia and the history of medicine one of the major events that you need to um kind of have on your radar is um the flu epidemic of 1918 and particularly if you look this up on september 28th of 1918 there was a liberty loan parade so it was a massive parade some said it was the longest parade in philadelphia's history to raise money for war bonds um it had a lot of military displays and so on this was happening while the flu epidemic was was known um was spreading And people um, begged the government, begged medical officials to speak out and say, hey, you need to cancel this parade because so many different, having that mass of people in a crowd is going to make it that much easier for the flu to spread. We know that it's deadly and so on. And they refused to cancel the parade. Now, part of the reason they did that is because during World War I, um, while this flu epidemic was happening, the government went to great effort to silence people about this epidemic because it was considered a threat to national security. If people knew that this was happening, um, it would be considered a threat. Um, it's interesting to think about military threat and medical threat in the same moment because actually the laws that shape our ability, the government's ability to force quarantine people and force vaccinations in some cases – comes from a landmark Supreme Court decision in 1904 that says, we can treat a medical threat or the threat of disease just as you would a foreign military invasion. So just as we force conscript people to serve in our national military, so can we force people to get vaccinated um, and to be quarantined. So while that decision had already happened in 1904, by 1918, because it was viewed as a national security threat, we didn't talk enough about the flu. This parade happened. And by the next day, there were reported cases of the flu, which eventually led to death, thousands of deaths. Um, deaths in the United States from this epidemic. It's estimated now that 675,000 people died in the United States from this epidemic. Within a few days in Philadelphia, 31 hospitals were filled with people with the flu. Um, you know, and this is something that actually um, in my family history, you think this is a hundred years ago. My grandmother was born at home, not fluffy. My other one. She was born at home and her mother got the flu not long after her birth and mm-hmm. died from the, this epidemic. So it's not that long ago, but the history of pandemics is really important to carry with us, especially as, you know, we're living through these times now. And, and just something I would point to is, you know, the the phrase fake news is something I actually don't like because it's been so politicized that it's really lost all meaning. Instead, I think it's important to think about ideas like disinformation or misinformation or just this idea of intent. So when you hear something on the news, what is the intent of the way the news is being shared with you? Are you purposely being reported something that's not true for a particular end? Are you unwittingly being shared um, information that the person sharing it just doesn't know that it's actually not true? Or are you being is something being withheld just the same way that the government withheld knowledge of the real threat of the flu epidemic? So um you know, there's been a lot of news reports that people have made light of, of like, can Corona beer cause, um, COVID-19 and all this kind of stuff. Um, and just keep in mind that that actually has a long history of kind of putting weird news stories in front of you that distract from the more important things, the ways to keep yourself safe, the reasons why you would cancel. Like people are upset. I read on the news that St. Patrick's Day parades are being canceled And just keep this Philadelphia parade in your mind as you think about that, because having that many people in one space is actually a great medical threat. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I don't know, just there's so much I could say on this. I haven't even talked about smallpox. I feel like I can't get into it. But just know, like, even the history of this discovery of that vaccination, the degree of those epidemics and the death rates were being falsely reported. The vaccines were attacked for their efficacy from the start. Um, in ways that you think, if you want to know for sure that history is not a narrative of progress, go study the history of medicine, period.
0: Um, You know, your friend and mine, James Franklin, Uh better known for his younger bro, uh, Ben Benjamin. Sure. Um, The reason why he had to leave Boston and went to become a printer in Rhode Island, upgrade in my opinion, but regardless, um, is because he protested what was then um, the inoculation system of smallpox. This is in the 1700s. This is hundreds of years ago. He was protesting the government's um, colonial government's push for smallpox inoculations. And he spoke out so much against it that he was basically pushed out of Boston. Um, and that is why he didn't stay a printer there and probably became far less famous than his younger brother, Benjamin. R.I.P.,
1: also yeah. he went at Cotton Mather, best known for the Salem Witch Trials, which was like I would not I would not I wouldn't try to wade into that energy because it's like if this man <laughs> was willing to do that, like and you're coming at him, just but, leave
0: the Mathers over there. Like that's how I feel. It's like
1: Marshall, Cotton, <laughs> all of them.
0: Everyone knows someone like that where it's like I'm going to put you over there. Right. Right? Like, we just don't need to go there every day. Yeah. Um,
1: It's tragic because Ben Franklin came out hard against inoculation and was like, exposing anyone to a small or to a mild version of a disease in order to inoculate them against it makes no earthly sense. It's a threat to your neighborhood. (laughs) There was implications at the time that the knowledge Cotton Mather had of inoculation came from his enslaved, uh, an enslaved member of his household. So then there was a lot of like racial discrimination against knowledge that would come from africa there's a lot of politics there to this but then it just spoiler alert ben franklin goes on to reverse his feelings about inoculation he loses family members to smallpox so it's a fraught history but i mean i will lay a lot at the feet of cotton mather even though technically he was correct (laughs) in this case
0: like cotton Mather had a lot of feelings someone who i think channeled much, much better. I just, I don't, I don't want to say that there's a connection where there's not, even though that's what I do in every single episode. Sure. I learned something kind of shocking in researching Addie's birthday. Uh-oh. Two things. So the genesis of Addie occurs at the same time as the Tom Hanks film Philadelphia. I'm just, I'm going to oh, have you connect gosh. some thoughts. I'm going to oh, have God. you connect some thoughts. I know that he's suffering right now. We're thinking of you. We're thinking of you and Rita. And Rita, of course, like goes on, like, Thinking of both of them. But here's the thing people have rightfully pointed out that the last time there was, not the last time, but a more recent time where there was a major public health crisis was the AIDS crisis, which was also mishandled terribly by Mm -hmm. the United States government and many world governments. One of the dramas that really, I think, did a lot to move public opinion was Philadelphia starring. Tom Hanks in which he has HIV and then AIDS set in Philadelphia. I'm just saying, I'm not saying you have to connect all of these dots. Wow. The other thing that happens in 1994, which is the year that this book comes out is the complete collected poems of Maya Angelou is published by random house. I know, you know where I'm going. Not random at all. Not random. Granted one of her most famous poems had come out in 83 when Pleasant is scheming to make this, but her furl, first, like, full collected poems is 1994. Her birthday is just a few days before Addie Walker's. And she, of course, wrote the famous poem Caged Bird, which I think directly inspired what we see with Madeer and her beautiful bird, who's used as a symbol for freedom. I 100%
1: think that's what happened here. 100%. Yeah. And what I think is really fascinating is that so. Maya Angelou writes her first, she wrote set, uh, seven memoirs. The first one is called, as you know, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, which is drawn from a poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar called Sympathy, which includes the line, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. In that poem, the speaker and the bird are male. Mm. And Maya Angelou actually flips it and uses that to frame the life experience of a black woman from childhood to adulthood and actually like if you've read that, it's a very, um, it's a tough read in a lot of ways, but it's so beautifully written. I've One summer I was sick and I just was in bed all summer and I read all seven of her books because they were printed as one group. I don't really know what I was was going on with me, <laughs> but I just did that like straight through. And it, I encourage anyone, if you can't do all seven in one sitting, so to speak, please just read I Know Why the Cage Word Sayings. But I 100% agree with you. And I want to think with you for a second about the fact that this is the second series in a row for us where we have an American girl dealing with a caged bird. Wow. Because Kirsten has that toy left for her by her friend. Remember when the friend moves to Oregon? And it's like the two strings and you pull it and the bird is like in the cage and out of it. And it's like, whoa, this is chilling and also not subtle. And now we have Madeir with Sunny the caged yellow bird.
0: I think part of what is so important about those is like, one, people did keep different things as pets, like different animals as pets historically. But I also love the way animals are introduced as both like symbols and important actors in all of these stories. Like, we're not going to talk about the raccoon. We've said too much about the raccoon. We can't. We can't. But like, we don't need to go there again. But I think what's hard if you're not reading along and I'm not saying you need to is I think I've at least tried so hard to give these books the justice that they deserve of just being so incredibly well written. Like when you say there's a caged bird and it's a symbol of freedom and this relationship that she has with an older woman, right? Like you're saying, it's kind of the reverse of the narrative that's in Angela's memoir. Um, it feels really obvious, but The way that it's done is so subtle and you have this visual of like this bright beautiful yellow bird that's so joyful that makes Mm -hmm. all these great noises and it's one more thing that makes you happy that addy gets to be a kid
1: yeah and i think we get to kind of because she's nine and we're we're sort of following her through her life in this moment we get to kind of be with her as she's both sensing that something isn't fair in her world about her race and this freedom that she's found, but also the ways that Madeira, as a woman who literally like was a was a maid or a, a service person, a freed service person in a household that Thomas Jefferson visited and her father yeah. served in the revolutionary war. So Madeira's life literally spans revolutionary war to the civil war. Um, so this person has this wealth of experience. They both look at a caged bird and Addie's like, this bird needs to get out of there. It looks lonely. It looks really unhappy. And, um, Madea responds by saying that cage can't contain Sunny's spirit. Um, It soars right out from behind the bars. That's what's important for all of us to let our souls sing out. So in other words, like there's a way that you can kind of compartmentalize sometimes literally in the case of this bird of like, okay, I acknowledge the restrictions on my life and my freedom, and I will find a way to thrive in spite of it. And it's just kind of beautiful to be with a nine-year-old who's encountering the really tragic cost of her freedom and the realities Mm -hmm. of it. And then also this kind of mentor to say, and yet you can still find something in this. Like there is a path forward. I
0: also, because I hadn't read the poem in like a long time. So I went back and I reread it. And I want you to remember what happens to Addie when she's punished in the first book. Um, So there's a part of the poem, the free bird thinks of another breeze and the trade winds soft through the sighing trees and the fat worms waiting on a dawn bright lawn. And he names the sky, his own like book one is all about Addie getting to escape, but there's a moment where she's literally treated like a bird where mm. worm worms are forced down her throat. So this is a really interesting kind of inversion on that because the poem is about like the challenge of freedom, right? Like right. that, that freedom is not this easy liberation for a bird or for a person. Um, and I think what's so important about that relationship is, like you're saying, Madir sees Addie in a very important way. And she also gives her this whole other toolkit for living in the world. Like, I think Addie's experience on the streetcar might have been different if she hadn't been hanging out with Madeer, who makes her so aware of like song and like noise. Like, Addie is so hyper attentive to noise, and it's why she's able to do double dutch because Madeer has quite like very clearly like changed the way that she interacts with the world, which is amazing.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of, it gets at these kind of like more poetic readings of this where it's like, okay, she teaches Addy rhythm. Like literally that's how she learns how to do double Dutch. But I think she gives this nuanced difference to Addy where it's like you can walk through life with your own rhythm. You don't just have Mm. to go like lockstep with everyone else because even her mother- When in the last book, she's so like frustrated and fatigued is like, that's just the way it is or whatever. Like we don't get that from Addie in this sense. It's kind of like I can let my spirit sing or like that's the last line of the book is let your spirit sing out. When she gives Addie the bird feathers as a birthday present, that's what it's supposed to signify. So I think it's kind of like teaching her individuality and personhood. Like now that she's a free person, like what kind of person does she want to be and how does she want to navigate her own freedom? It's, it's beautiful. a beautiful, <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, we could just keep talking about this forever, but it's a beautiful book,
0: absolutely. now, when we come back next time, we are going to do a mailbag, right, so we actually have two two things in the pipeline. Um, We are really looking forward to something that we're calling March on March, which is a Patreon. I just made that up, but um, a Patreon episode about the new little women um, in advance of it coming out on DVD and streaming in April. Um, We're going to be talking about the Alcotts, about their lives. We're looking at you, Bronson. Bronson, you're not going to get praised. (laughs) No, no, no. Although I was, okay, I was doing some homework for this today, and I was starting to have a turn, so we'll see. Um, And then we would love if once again, we haven't done this since last summer, and it was a lot of fun, we are going to do a mailbag episode. We
1: are very excited to do that. You
0: can please get in touch with us. You can ask us any questions
1: about the books, about American Girl, the franchise, anything pop culture, really anything, anything you're curious to know. Please send your questions along, Um, send your conspiracy theories, send your any any news you have. We'd love to read your questions on the show. If you send us um, a voicemail, we can play it on the show with your permission. Um, So please, please uh, get in touch. We do love doing these episodes from time to time.
0: And tell us about things that you love that you think we might love. You know, the person who told me to listen to Who Weekly has changed my life. I'm now giving that about three hours a week. (laughs) And, you know, like Addy is a them. The Goldens are whose. Madeir, do you know this? I've I've listened to a little bit of it, but not clearly as much as you.
1: And you can catch up. Okay. All right. I will I will get back into this.
0: It gives you this whole new paradigm for seeing the world of, you know, whether a person is a who. Like if you think of them, do you have to ask who? The Goldens are who's or them's like Addie is a them.
1: A hundred percent.
0: Yes. She's made it. She really has. But Um, I will check that out. Happy birthday to our Aries babies, to Addie especially. We're entering your season. We're grateful. And again, I always want to say thank you to everyone that has joined our Patreon. We really do appreciate you. Very much. And It gives us just another opportunity to be able to talk with people.
1: Yeah, we do enjoy that. We're sorry we traumatized you last month. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, we traumatized ourselves in the process. We're not done with Rinaldi. We'll be circling back for sure. Um, no. But yeah, we do love doing those episodes. So thanks very much.
0: Thank you. And if people want to get in touch with you to just tell you anything? Where should they find you?
1: You can find me on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123 and on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. And if someone wants to give you a tutorial on how we might actually do Jeopardy questions (laughs) or answers... Where might they find you?
0: You can find me at Allison Horrocks on both Twitter and Instagram. Um, And you can also please follow the show. Um, And that seems to be the place where everyone sends memes about bangs. So
1: into it, very into it. Yeah. So feel free to reach out, ask us your questions. You can send us some comments if you feel like you have a public statement that needs to be shared (laughs) with the OGAG community. Uh, And we will see you next episode. (music) Thank <music> you.